I am Elle Penelope, author of Epic Fantasy and Paranormal Romance, and welcome to My Imaginary Friends, a look behind the scenes of an author mapping the worlds in my head and making them a reality. Hello, friends. Today is Sunday, September 26th, 2021, and this is episode 139 of My Imaginary Friends. I'm Leslie. So, I just got back. I just drove back up from Virginia Beach this morning. Like I got home. I scrounged around in the refrigerator for something to eat. I hope my husband didn't want those two chicken legs. I really hope he was leaving them for me. And uh, while it's quiet, while he's at work, I decided to record. I got up at five this morning. As I'm recording this, it's 11 a.m. I had a good trip back and forth, and I was in Virginia Beach because of the Hampton Roads Writers Conference, where I did my first keynote speech. So that is this week's best thing. If you listened last week, I think I was talking about writing the keynote, and that was a little bit harrowing. But because I write every morning with my friend Inez Johnson, uh, I was talking to her about what should this thing be about? And I had watched some YouTube videos and just done some research about how people write these types of things. And uh, she gave me some ideas. We bounced ideas back and forth, which is always nice to talk to someone about things, whatever you're writing, whether it is a novel or a keynote. Uh, and then I got good feedback afterwards. Um, I, I wrote it. I practiced it a couple times. I practiced it in front of my husband. He gave me the okay. And he's a pretty harsh critic. So I thought I was on the right track. The night before, I tweaked it, of course. Like I had it all set. I had actually printed it out because I was planning to use my iPad, but I was like, always want a paper backup in case of technology gremlins. And then, of course, the night before, I, I tweaked it. And people came up to me afterwards saying nice things. And part of me is always like, oh, they're just being nice. Like, I know they don't have to say anything at all. They could just see me walking by and like, oh. But people made a point to come up to me and say, oh, it's a nice keynote, or I got something out of it, or it really inspired me, which I will try to just take it on face value and not assume that everyone is lying to me, <laughs> which is the natural assumption. And then behind my back, they're like, oh, that was the worst thing I've ever heard. You know, like, those thoughts always come into play. But I think that I did a pretty decent job. I did get a critique. Um, a woman told me that I spoke too fast, which I do. I, I, I talk fast. I was trying to talk slower, but the more nervous I get, uh, I do talk faster. So that is something to work on if I ever give another one or whenever I'm speaking in public in the future. I might speak too fast for you on this podcast, but you know, you've got the little speed speed controls on your podcast player. So do what you need to do. Um, so yeah, that was exciting and kind of terrifying, but I'm glad I had that experience. Uh, if I'm ever asked to do this again in the future somewhere, I will know that I can do it, which is always nice. So shout out to everyone at Hampton Roads Writers uh, and the Hampton Roads Writing Conference. And uh, any new listeners from that, welcome. Yeah, so that was this week's best thing. A very close runner up, almost a tie is this video that I will link to in my show notes, which is the Planet Wrap. It's been going around social media. I saw it. I saw one of them. I think I saw the second one first. And then I went back a few days later and found the first one. So it is this guy. His handle is Keats Did It. And he is an incredibly talented rapper. And he does a rap as all nine planets in our solar system. And he's got these t-shirts and sweatshirts with the different planet names and the little taglines. It is extremely entertaining, and whether or not you are a rap fan, it's got subtitles so you can tell what he's saying. I do recommend you at least check it out because it is just, he's just so talented. And, you know, why? Why are you so talented? But it made, it made me smile. And then if you watch this one on his Instagram, uh, there is the 
Coda because Pluto gets uh, cut off and then Pluto has his time to shine in another video, which is the one that I saw first. So check that out as well. Writing update. I ended up taking the week off from writing. I didn't plan to because I had failed to plan properly. I should know by now that I do need to take about a week off after I turn something in. But last week I turned in The Monsters We Defy, my 1925 fantasy heist to my editor at Orbit after doing another revision pass after the developmental edits. And Ennis Johnson was like, oh, so are you going to take some time off? I'm like, oh no, I've got lots of energy. I'm going to go right into the next thing. And that was a lie. <laughs> like I did feel like I had energy at that time, but um, fortunately I did have to write the keynote and I had to prepare for the workshops that I was giving at the conference. And that took up my writing time over the course of last week, which was a good thing because I think if I had tried to just dive right into one of the other projects I have, that wasn't the best thing. I do feel a little bit refreshed now that I took a week off of thinking about fiction writing. And it's like a thing I know, but I forget because I'm, you know, I get overwhelmed by the things that I have to do and uh, my planning and I need to, I feel like I need to just be working all the time. I need to do that momentum because I like it and because I do have a lot of energy for these stories, but also because they're going to be due sometime in the future and I want to just, you know, get on top of things. But rest is an important part of creativity as well. And I do, sometimes I remember and sometimes I don't to schedule in a break and rest. And I was still working on things. I just was not even thinking about really any of my... <laughs> any of the projects I have on my plate. That starts again tomorrow, maybe today, depending on how today goes, but definitely tomorrow. I will be back at it at 8 a.m. Eastern time. I'm not sure exactly what I'm doing first yet, though. So I had talked about um, the various deadlines, and some of them are going to be more self-imposed than others. Um, so the projects I'm working on are my new 1830s project, semi-secret project, um, that I have to do a book proposal for. And then my Savage City, which is the paranormal romance that I am self-publishing. I got the first draft of the cover for my cover designer. And it just reminded me why I love my cover designer. This is the same designer I used for Ursinger Chronicles when it was self-published. It is Bookfly Design. James Egan is the designer's name. And I love him because you have to do a cover brief and I just put down all these ideas and I usually make a Pinterest board and he takes what I say and gives me something that is exactly what I want that I didn't know that I wanted. You know, like in my mind, I was like, I want it to be kind of like these covers. And I, you know, I gave him the the covers that I liked and the whole Pinterest board. I told him why I liked the covers. And so in my mind, it was going to be something just like those, but it's not, but it is, but it's not. And I love it. And I'm trying to think, you know, I'm I have to give him some feedback. And the way it went originally, when I first saw the first cover of Song of Blood and Stone, I gave him a bunch of feedback and he changed it. And I was like, no, I like the first version better. And that seems to be the way. So at this point, I'm like, should I even give him any feedback? Like, I don't know. I, I have to submit it to the brain trust, to my mastermind partners uh, at our meeting later today. But yeah, I, when I first saw it, I was like, this is so much cooler than I ever thought. I mean, I knew it was going to be cool because everything he does is cool, but it's still cooler than I thought. And I'm so excited. And I don't know when I'm going to do a cover reveal. No time soon. I'm only going to do one when I have a date and a pre-order link. So 
it'll be a couple of months probably. So I'm sorry to gush about it now, but you can just have the anticipation uh, of, of knowing that a cool cover is coming and that I am incredibly excited about it. And this book, even though I'm a little scared about this revision. So that is the other thing I have to do. So first draft of 1830s project, second draft revision of Savage City. And I think that that is going to come first. I think that if I always put other projects first, like not my projects, then my projects never get done. And because this proposal, as I was talking about last week, I don't think I'm going to even turn it in until December. And I think it's going to take about two months-ish. So I can spend October working on Savage City. And if I give myself a month to revise it, that should be enough time because it's short. I mean, it's like 70,000 words now. Might not be enough time. It could overlap a little bit. I'm still figuring it out. As you can tell, I have no idea what's happening. Right now, today, my gut is saying, do my thing first, get it ready so that I can have a pre-order link so I can even just start getting an inkling in in my mind of book two, because I would love to launch with a pre-order for book two, even if it's a year away. That's what I'm thinking right now. And that still gives me a lot of time to work on this proposal. Project number three is my Orbit book two, which I do have ideas that I have to start researching. Yeah, so there's a lot going on. And even having three books in my mind at the same time, three books in different series, completely different books, not related at all for three different, you know, places. Um, It can be a little mentally taxing, but I do need to work on all of them at the same time because that second book for Orbit, I have a two book contract and um, Monsters Be Defies book one, unknown book two, totally new, new series. Well, not new series, they're standalone. So um, new standalone book. I just need to, to codify something in my mind to bring to my editor to see if she likes it and if she doesn't think of something else, I guess. Plenty of ideas in my mind, but there is something that has a lot of energy behind it uh, if she likes it. So yeah, no writing happened this week, but all these things have been in the back of my mind. And I know that when I sit down at my scheduled time, my scheduled writing time, to actively think about them using the front of my mind, then the back of my mind will have come up with something that I don't even know about yet. That's the wonderful thing about creativity. (laughs) There was an interesting article that came out about uh, trigger warnings that I will link to in the show notes. So trigger warnings um, or content warnings are kind of a thing at the beginning of, in this case, it's an academic professor talking about them, um, giving them in regards to material for her class that that our students would be reading and saying, oh, this contains, you know, child abuse or sexual assault or something. So that the idea was that it would help uh, people who are experiencing PTSD to know what's coming and to be able to cope with sensitive subjects, essentially. And it seems like sort of a kind and um, helpful thing to do for people's mental health. But there is research that is cited in this article that says how they, tr- how trigger warnings actually do not help people, that they don't reduce negative effects or emotional distress. And this is by Harvard psychologists. And um, it says even worse, researchers found that trigger warnings actually increased the anxiety of individuals with the most severe PTSD because it encouraged them to view new experiences through a prism of past trauma. 
and it made the, made them view trauma as more central to, to their life. And that's interesting because there's I've always felt a little ambivalent about trigger warnings, and there's an interesting kind of tension because I do like to be warned when I'm going to see something that could be traumatizing, you know. But at the same time, I don't want it to be mandated. And I don't know if I want it to be like official. Like the way I think of it is I'll talk about a book. And um, if I talk about a book that say has something like a very like violent sexual assault in it, I will warn the person I'm telling. Uh, And especially if I know that person wants to be warned, you know, like I have a friend who's like, please tell me. And I'm like, yes. Normally I'm not reading those kinds of things anyway, but sometimes I happen upon them. And and it has happened that when I'm just reading a book and all of a sudden there's just a very surprising, violent, and like graphically described assault on the page. I'm like, whoa. And that makes me feel bad. I mean, I don't think it's a PTSD issue. Maybe it is. I don't know. But um, I can recall it. So one specific book. There's a Juliet Marier book. Um, and I have to look up the title. But yeah, it came out. I, I wasn't expecting it. And I was like, now, if I had known that it was happening, would that have made the reaction different? Or would I have just not have read the book? I mean, I don't know. It's impossible to say. On the one hand, it allows you to self-select the things that you consume as a consumer, knowing that you don't want to consume certain things. And that's your prerogative. And you should be able to to do that. Uh, But the idea that we have to have these content warnings because they help people, the research says that they don't help people and they can actually harm. And uh, I'm still sitting with that. I'm digesting that. I know that Colleen Hoover, one of my favorite authors, got into trouble a while back, I believe, for saying that she didn't believe in content warnings. Um, and I wonder if the people who were upset at her about that, if they knew about this research, would not be upset. I mean, you never know what people are going to get upset about. I think that there should be places where if I want to look it up, I can go there and look it up. But I don't think that it should be the responsibility of the author or the publisher to preface their material with content warnings. That's just my opinion. Um, and even before I read this article. But on the other hand, as a reader, as a consumer, um, like in that vein, I actually still would like to take the steps myself to find out as opposed to turning to the first page and seeing a whole list of things that um, might offend someone or might potentially traumatize someone. Uh, it is, it's a thorny issue. And a lot of, a large part of me is like, there's no, there's no trigger warnings on life. There's no content warnings on real life, especially when you encounter a traumatic situation when something happens to you. You're not going to get warned. And part of being able to live in this world is having some resilience and adaptability and dealing with all of the stressors. And terrible things happen to people all the time, and um, you have to deal with them. And there's no warnings for that. So expecting them and mandating them isn't a way to exist in the world in a successful, functional way, in my opinion. Um, So yeah, the fact that there's research out that calls that into question is really interesting to me. So if you would like to read the article, I will put it in the show notes. Since I wasn't actively writing, I did watch some more TV. My cousin recommended a show on Netflix to me, and I watched it, I binged it, (laughs) essentially in one day, actually all in one day, because we took a break halfway through and we're like, we can finish this tonight. The show is called Clickbait. It's on Netflix, like I said, it's eight episodes, eight one-hour episodes. Plan to watch it in one day because 
it just rolls into each episode rolls into the next one with really good hooks. And you're going to want to know the answer. You're not going to be able to, I mean, my mom actually watched a couple and then she's like, we're watching the rest next week. And I'm like, how? So maybe you're different. But for me, I was like, I need to finish this today. I need to finish this today. So it's got um, the guy from Entourage, Adrian Grenier, and um, Zoe Kazan, Betty Gabriel, known for her work on Get Out, uh, her amazing performance in Get Out. And so it's the, the setup is um, a man, father, husband is kidnapped and he's put on the internet with a sign that says, when this video gets to 5 million views, I will die. And there's mystery of trying to figure out who took him and just trying to, you know, save him and find out what's happening. I really, really enjoyed it. I was completely drawn in. It goes in some wild directions. It's got it's the definition of twists and turns. And it's a really interesting structure that I'm actually thinking of using in a book where each episode follows a different character and it's from their point of view. So the sister, the detective, the journalist, you know, the wife, um, it goes through all of these people's perspectives in a linear story. So how they're dealing with it and then what secrets they might have and what how the, the part that they play in this mystery and solving it. And I really like that. I'm really, it's like stirring the pot of imagination in my brain. The other show we are watching that we cannot binge because it's coming out week by week. Like who does that on streaming? But it's called Why the Last Man. It's on Hulu. I started watching it because I followed Charlie Jane Anders, the author who, who I first found out about many, many years ago because she was one of the founders of io9.com, which when I lived in California, I love that website. It's a, it was a science fiction and fantasy focused website. And then she sold it and became an author and she's fabulous. Um, so she's a trans woman and she was asked to be in the writer's room for the show. And she had this post on Instagram that I read about her experiences working on the show. And I had never heard of it before, but it sounded like a really interesting concept. It was based on a graphic novel series where every mammal with a Y chromosome dies in this strange way, mysterious way, except for one. There is one uh, biological male still living and his uh, male monkey is the only, like, every other, like, animals, people, anyone with a Y chromosome is gone. And so it's kind of, I was really fascinated by the idea of, um, which so far in the first three or four episodes, they are tackling, like, okay, if it's only women left, or basically cisgendered women, trans men, everyone with two X chromosomes left, how do we function? And I was looking at articles um, from one of the creators, I think the showrunner, who was just saying how much she learned about just how, how things function. Like grocery stores get deliveries twice a day and 90 whatever percent of truck drivers are men. So from that level, just a transportation level, um, obviously things like nuclear power plants, oil drills, the foundation of our world, things that are male dominated professions, whether it's because of sexism or just because they require heavy, dirty work that most women don't want to do that are the foundation of our society and our civilization. And when there's no men left, how do we live? And the show is a really fascinating um, example of that. And that's kind of the part that I'm focused on. There are some really good characters and acting. The male character that is the why the last man character is the most irritating character on television. And I understand that they were like, okay, he's the last man on earth. So he's got to be like the worst in every way. But 
he is really difficult to watch. Like they did an exceptional job of making him the worst character I've ever seen. Every time he's on the screen, I'm like, oh. But they do, now they're pairing him with one of the best characters on the show. So I do keep watching. My husband is like, every time he sees him, he's like, I can't watch this show. He's going to be the reason why I stop watching this show. And I'm like, I know, he's bad. He's the worst. I'm hoping for a big character arc. I mean, it's probably going to have to be a multi-season character arc because this dude is the worst. But the show is very intriguing and interesting. And I dig it. So, Hulu, why the last man I recommend. So that's it for me for this week. My goals for the coming week are to come up with some schedules and some plans for how I'm going to tackle the three projects that I've got on my plate in a reasonable and sane way. And um, that's the basic goal. I, I doubt I'll get any words. If I work on Savage City, I have to review my editorial letter and figure out a plan of attack and reread the manuscript because I still have not reread it yet. And for my 1830s project, I have to refresh myself on the research because it's been several months since I have even thought about that one too. Um, and th- whether or not I can actually do both of them at the same time is an open question because work is fairly busy. And I do write first because both of my jobs are mentally taxing, uh, writing and website development. And I need to give, you know, my freshest energy to the writing, but I need to have enough in reserve to actually get my client work done. And if I'm working on two writing projects a day, I might have to do a thing where like, okay, one or two days a week, I work on the second project. Every day I work on project one. Two days a week, I work on project two. And something like that so that I am maintaining my energy levels. And because that is a thing that I've experienced in the past brain fog late, early, mid-afternoon from just doing too much. And if it's coding and things like I have to really just be on the ball with, even if it's not coding, a lot of what my job as a website developer is problem solving and I'm planning something. So I have to actually just, okay, what is the best way to do this? There's 15 ways to do it. What is the most efficient, the most secure, you know, the cheapest for the client, the most efficient for me time-wise and energy-wise, all of that stuff. So that's a big part of what I do. And that just requires, it's a different kind, like a different part of the brain. You know, I, my bio talks about left brain, right brain, which is true, creative and technical, but whatever part of it is like both sides share the same, you know, reserve of energy and of creative energy, I think. And I have to manage that really carefully. So that is the goal. But I also, I am thinking about all kinds of marketing things for Savage City since I've seen this draft of the cover and ah, so excited about it. Uh, If you are not on my newsletter, uh, my author newsletter, make sure that you're on it. If you listen sporadically, if you listen regularly, then I'll be telling you about it. But always a good idea if you're interested in Savage City, which is lpnlp.com slash newsletter. And I will talk to you next week. I hope that you have a wonderful week. For episode show notes and to sign up for the Footnotes newsletter and get the show notes in your inbox, go to myimaginaryfriendsshow.com. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and watch the video episodes on YouTube. I would really appreciate a rating or review to help support the show. And My Imaginary Friends is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. For more fantastic podcasts, go to frolic.media slash podcasts. And if you're on the video and have not seen my shirt before, it says, I have personally explained the process to you, Deborah." And it is a quote from Nora Roberts in response to a fan. This was a quote in the comment section of her blog to a fan who was 
basically complaining about why she didn't write more books every year and thinking that she knew more about publishing than Nora Roberts. And Nora Roberts knew her and apparently had personally explained the process to her before. And this short was made after that conversation went viral and I had to buy it because obvious reasons, I hope. 